Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Inside the Writer's Studio offers a peek inside the author's life through an onstage reading and interview. A craft seminar the next morning is a very special opportunity to learn more about the writing process from a master. Kazuo Ishiguro, the March 2015 Inside the Writer's Studio guest, was born in Nagasaki, Japan in 1954 and came to Britain at the age of five. He is the author of seven novels, which have been translated into over 40 languages. The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go have also been adapted into major films. His most recent novel is The Buried Giant. Ishiguro's interviewer, Erica Krauss, is a longtime fiction instructor at Lighthouse and mentors for the Lighthouse Book Project. Her short fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, One Story, Plowshares, Shenandoah, Glimmer Train, Esquire.com, Crazy Horse, and Story. Erica's new novel, Contenders, came out from Rare Bird Books earlier in March. It will also be published in Germany. for applauding me. I'm not, I'm not Ish. I was told I could call him Ish, so I'm going to call him Ish forever. Um, my name is Andrea Dupree. I'm the program director at Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and it is my pleasure to welcome you all to Inside the Writers Studio, the late March, really hot outside Kazuo Ishiguro edition. It's a limited edition. Only this once. Um, I'm feeling a little gloaty on behalf of Denver because I uh, noticed when I was looking on his tour website, he's going to be in America for about a little over two weeks. Really only four non-coastal cities are being hit. One of them's Chicago, so does that really count? (laughs) So three inland cities and where Denver's one of them. If that doesn't make us... If that doesn't make us an international literary center, what does? Um, Okay, so first I want to let you know what's going on. I want to orient you because there's a plan. We have a plan. We always have plans. And today the plan is I'm going to introduce Erica Krauss, who's going to come out and introduce... I know. She's going to come out and introduce Ish. Please join me in welcoming Erica Krauss. See you guys later. Hi, thank you for coming. And welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio with Kazuo Ishiguro, also known as Ish. Shortly after I was asked to conduct this interview, I ransacked my bookshelves and was dismayed to discover that almost all my Ishiguro books had been stolen. I had lent them out to students, and not one was ever returned to me, which seemed like a uniquely low percentage even for writers. So I was complaining about this fact to my friend, and she said, Erica, you have a lot of nerve. I lent you my copy of The Unconsoled 20 years ago, and I haven't seen it since. (laughs) And I still have it. (laughs) So what is it about these books that turns us into thieves? 
Why do we never let them go? <laughs> Sorry. I'm here all week. <laughs> so I thought about why the books were important to me and realized that it was because when I read about these characters' lives, I feel somehow complicit in their fates. I'm entrusted not just with their secrets, but also with the secrets they don't know about themselves. I want to both protect them from that self-knowledge and also be there to see them lose their innocence. This complex and active reading relationship makes these stories feel at once deeply personal and also universal. That said, I still want my books back. So. <laughs> Kazuo Ishiguro was born in Nagasaki, Japan, and moved to England when he was five. He's the author of eight books and several screenplays. He's the winner of the Man Booker Award for The Remains of the Day, with three of his other novels shortlisted for that very exclusive prize. He has also been award, awarded an OBE for services to literature, the Winifred Holtby Prize, the Whitbread Book of the Year Award, the Premio Scano, the Cheltenham Prize, the Serona Literary Prize, the Casino de Santiago European Novel Award, and several other prizes I unfortunately cannot pronounce. <laughs> the Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go were made into major motion pictures, and Ishiguro's new novel, The Berry Giant, will soon join that list, produced by Hollywood heavyweight Scott Rudin. His books have been translated into over 40 languages. This is his first visit back to Denver in 20 years, so please give a warm Colorado welcome to Kazuo Ishiguro. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to speak from the podium because uh, on this tour, every time I try and speak from a lectern, it's, it's a disaster. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, usually, even for somebody of my height, it's way too low, or the, there's some weird shadow falling over the book, or, or there's, there's, a, there's a spider crawling over the place, or something. So I'm going to keep away from that thing if you don't mind. <laughs> And, and uh, I'm, uh, we're going to have a conversation. It's going to be mainly conversation-based, I believe, this evening. And I'm hoping that, you know, after that very warm welcome, you're, you're also going to not be too shy to participate when the time comes uh, at these mics. It's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit freaky to come stand at these mics, but I, I hope you're going to do that. I'm just going to read the opening three pages so you get some sort of taste um, for, for what we might be referring to whenever we refer to the new book, um, assuming that most of you have, haven't had a chance to read it. Um, it's a bit like when you go to these kind of classical music concerts and you're not quite sure whether you're supposed to applaud between their <laughs> movements. Um, when I come to the end of this, this, is, this isn't any kind of big deal passage. It's, it's just literally the opening three pages. So, so maybe I should just say, let, let, let's not applaud at that point. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm getting embarrassed at these kind of rather hesitant sort of things that when I come to the end of this, it, there's no natural uh, climax or anything. I'm just going to stop at the at bottom of the third page. Right, and then, right, so, so no clapping, and then we'll, we'll chat, and then you can, you can take the floor, you, you people here. Yeah. Uh, chapter one The Buried Giant. 
You would have searched a long time for the sort of winding lane or tranquil meadow for which England later became celebrated. There were instead miles of desolate, uncultivated land, here and there rough-hewn paths over craggy hills or bleak moorland. Most of the roads left by the Romans would by then have become overgrown or broken, often fading into wilderness. Icy fogs hung over rivers and marshes, serving all too well the ogres that were then still native to this land. The people who lived nearby, one wonders what desperation led them to settle in such gloomy spots, might well have feared these creatures, whose panting breaths could be heard long before their deformed figures emerged from the mist. But such monsters were not cause for astonishment. People then would have regarded them as everyday hazards, and in those days there was so much else to worry about. How to get food out of the hard ground, how not to run out of firewood, how to stop the sickness that could kill a dozen pigs in a single day and produce green rashes on the cheeks of children. In any case, ogres were not so bad, provided one did not provoke them. One had to accept that every so often, perhaps following some obscure dispute in their ranks, a creature would come blundering into a village in a terrible rage, and despite shouts and brandishings of weapons, rampage about injuring anyone slow to move out of its path. Or that every so often an ogre might carry off a child into the mist. The people of the day had to be philosophical about such outrages. In one such area, on the edge of a vast bog, in the shadow of some jagged hills, lived an elderly couple, Axel and Beatrice. Perhaps these were not their exact or full names, but for ease this is how we will refer to them. I would say this couple lived an isolated life, but in those days few were isolated in any sense we would understand. For warmth and protection, the villagers lived in shelters, many of them dug deep into the hillside, connecting one to the other by underground passages and covered corridors. Our elderly couple lived within one such sprawling warren, building would be too grand a word, with roughly 60 other villagers. If you came out of their warren and walked for 20 minutes around the hill, you would have reached the next settlement, and to your eyes this one would have seemed identical to the first. But to the inhabitants themselves, there would have been many distinguishing details of which they would have been proud or ashamed. I have no wish to give the impression that this was all there was to the Britain of those days, that at a time when magnificent civilizations flourished elsewhere in the world, we were here not much beyond the Iron Age. Had you been able to roam the countryside at will, you might well have discovered castles containing music, fine food, athletic excellence, or monasteries with inhabitants steeped in learning. But there is no getting around it. Even on a strong horse, in good weather, you could have ridden for days without spotting any castle or monastery looming out of the greenery. Mostly, you would have found communities like the one I have just described, and unless you had with you gifts of food or clothing, or were ferociously armed, you would not have been sure of a welcome. 
I am sorry to paint such a picture of our country at that time, but there you are. To return to accident, Beatrice, as I said, this elderly couple lived on the outer fringes of the Warren, where their shelter was less protected from the elements and hardly benefited from the fire in the great chamber where everyone congregated at night. Perhaps there had been a time when they had lived closer to the fire, a time when they had lived with their children. In fact, it was just such an idea that would drift into Axel's mind as he lay in his bed during the empty hours before dawn, his wife soundly asleep beside him. And then a sense of some unnamed loss would gnaw at his heart, preventing him from returning to sleep. Perhaps that was why, on this particular morning, Axel had abandoned his bed altogether and slipped quietly outside to sit on the old warped bench beside the entrance to the warren in wait for the first signs of daylight. It was spring, but the air still felt bitter, even with Beatrice's cloak, which he had taken on his way out and wrapped around himself. Yet he had become so absorbed in his thoughts that by the time he realized how cold he was, the stars had all but gone, a glow was spreading on the horizon, and the first notes of birdsong were emerging from the dimness. He rose slowly to his feet, regretting having stayed out so long. He was in good health, but it had taken a while to shake off his last fever, and he did not wish it to return. Now he could feel the damp in his legs, but as he turned to go back inside, he was well satisfied, for he had this morning succeeded in remembering a number of things that had eluded him for some time. Moreover, he now sensed he was about to come to some momentous decision, one that had been put off far too long, and felt an excitement within him which he was eager to share with his wife. That's the bottom of page three. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> now, I, I told you not to do that, but, <laughs> but thank you anyway. You didn't think they were going to listen. No. It's a cowboy state. So, so that was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Um, shall we talk about the buried giant? Uh, what, whatever you like. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to follow you, Great. Erica. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't go to the lectern, actually, because I realized... Um, it's, it's kind of very awkward for the person sitting on the stage. When the, if, I, if I'm reading, you, I, I guess you don't quite know what to do. I mean, you sit there <laughs> grinning or... Um, Showing them a good side. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I, I, should have, I should have been more considerate. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you should have really yeah, I, yeah, rearranged all things. I know, down. it's very awkward when, yeah, to just sit there. <laughs> so, The Buried Giant. Let's talk about memory and The Buried okay. Giant because so many of your books revolve around memory and how memory defines us and controls us. Um, why memory? Why is memory such a predominant force in your work? And um, why, is, why do so many of your books return to that theme as opposed to any other theme, really? Well, I think it's changed over the years. You know, I, I think right at, the, right at the start of my writing life, um, I just associated writing fiction with the act of memory. Because I didn't, really, I didn't really set off in life thinking I, was, you know, I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I was doing other things. I, I wanted to be a rock and roll star, to be honest. <laughs> and it was only when I was about 22, 23, 
um, I had this kind of almost you, know, you could almost say it was a sudden compulsion to to write a novel. And when I look back on it, I've analysed it this way. Um, I think I, I suddenly wanted to write a novel because it was a very good way to preserve, well, not exactly preserve memories, but to preserve a remembered world. In my case, this, this was the world, this was the Japan that I had left at five years old. And I think all through my growing up, like when I was seven, when I was eight, I think I was always thinking back to this other world, this other place I might have grown up called Japan. And another place that I believed I was going to return to because that was the, that was the deal. My father was a scientist in Britain and it was that situation where another two years of you know, funding, you know, we'll stay another two years, then go back to Japan. <laughs> and it went on like that all from the age of five to 15. And I think I became an adult with this very precious place called, that I called Japan in my head. Um, but that it didn't really exist in reality. You know, it, it was a kind of a remembered place and a place of imagination and speculation. And, the other, and by the time I was in my 20s, I think I realized that um, this very precious little world I had was actually getting fainter and fainter with every year I got older. And I think this is why I was suddenly seized with this idea, oh, if I, if I write a novel, I could, I could recreate that world, you know, that I call Japan, in a novel. Um, and then it'll be safe inside the novel. Um, and so my first two books, I think that, that's, that was my kind of unconscious project. That was my real motive. So somewhere right at the beginning of my writing life, I made some equation between um, memory, uh, the whole business about preserving memory, and th the act of writing fiction. Then I think over the years... It became, maybe it became a kind of a habit or something. I started to use um, memory as a lens through which I looked at various aspects of human relationships. And so when I was writing a book like The Remains of the Day, it was very much told through the memory of the narrator. But that book wasn't so much about memory per se as how somebody evaluated the, their own experiences, how they evaluated themselves. And, and the life that they had led and the decisions they had made. And so a lot of it became about how much do I want to remember, how much do I want to keep buried, you know. Um, and, and sometimes there's a real battle there. You know, life is a lot easier if you don't remember some things, but, <laughs> but actually, you know, there's a strange compulsion. You, you want to look, you want to see, because there comes a time when you need to know who you are. And I think... Um, I'm sorry this first question is being answered at such Please. great length. Please go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a nap. No, I'm just kidding. I'm having, having worried about you sitting <laughs> no. unemployed in a chair for no, a long time. No, I'm listening. No, I'm doing it again. <laughs> it's I'm interesting. I'll right, just, right, just finish up. I'll just wind up very no, quickly. No, don't finish up. Keep going. Um, I, think, I think recently um, I've been trying to move on from just talking about individual, just one person struggling with that question, how much do I want to remember about myself? How much do I want to forget? I've been wanting to push that on slightly to say, how would that question apply to, say, a marriage you know, or to a family, to a relationship? Because shared memories in, a, in something like a marriage are, are, I think play a crucial role. And, and so in this, you know, in this story, you know, it's, a kind of a, it's a kind of a love story. Um, but you know, for some reason the couple have lost a lot of their shared memories. 
it's not to do with Alzheimer's or dementia. Everybody in this land is suffering from some memory lapse. That, that's the premise, you know. And for them, they think, well, you know, our memories are terribly precious to us. We're an elderly couple, you know, we, we've, we've loved each other for so long, but you know, if our shared memories are gone, you know, what would that do to our love? You know, would our love just fade? Uh, and so they want, des- desperately want their memories to come back, and they go on a journey to try and find some of those memories. But then, it, just as with the individual, the, the other side of the equation comes up. You know, they start to fear, actually, that there are some things in our past that we have agreed to bury. Right. You know, would our love survive the resurrection of those memories? Mm-hmm. But, but if we don't actually, you know, face those memories, is our love a phony one? Is it based on something not real? Is it based on a false premise? And if our life together isn't going to be, you know, if we don't have that many years left together, isn't it important now to try and face that, you know? But it's a real, you know, they, they're rather afraid um, what would happen if they remember, but they're afraid of continuing to forget, you know? So, um, and just finally, you know, I wanted to push that question on to a whole nation. You know, how does a nation remember and forget? Um, every nation has dark passages. Um, and I've taken a, a society here where something traumatic has happened a generation back. And people are coexisting in an uneasy peace. Uh, a society like that, maybe there's a good argument for saying a little bit of forgetting is actually good. You know, remembering too much might start off another cycle of violence. It might lead to a complete disintegration of society. And I guess we, we, we can all think of examples in every country that we, we might care to name of um, you know, buried giants. You know, there are buried giants certainly in Britain where I come from or Japan, my other country. I dare say there are buried giants in your you know, great country <laughs> as it is. I mean, everyone has buried giants. Right. Mm. But given the impossibility of completely forgetting, I mean, in the buried giant they have the luxury of a dragon who allows them to forget every atrocity that was done to them. But since we do not employ such dragons in our world today, um, it's really impossible to completely forget. So you have these generational wars and generational conflicts. So if you can't forget, what's left for us then? Well... Does that well, mean you, that it's just yeah. Well, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I think, I think it's a really difficult question. I mean, um, you, you refer to the fact that in in my book, there's a kind of there's a you know, supernatural reason why, right. why some kind of forgetfulness has been enforced on the society. But I think it's an interesting question. You know, where if you're talking about a nation, you know, where are the memory banks of a nation? Who controls the memories? Because really, who controls the memories of a nation to some extent controls what's happening now and what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is how, that is how you know, leaders or, or sub- subversive groups too, I guess, you know, um, they manipulate a society's memories. Um, you can see in the case of, say, what happened in, in uh, the old Yugoslavia when it disintegrated or in Rwanda, in, in, you know, during the Rwanda genocide, how very deliberately, um, very um, violent, angry memories were deliberately aw- awakened um, 
for a particular end, which was to actually mobilize a war. Uh, people who have been uh, you know, living happily together suddenly turned on each other. And, uh, and that is because you know, somebody actually pressed those levers. Um, in some kind of ongoing situations that go on and on and on, you can see that both sides um, just try and keep, keep the fuel of hatred going by, mm-hmm. by making people remember things that happened generations before by the other side. You know. right. um, so I, I think it's, it's a very complicated question. It's not as easy as saying, you know, it's better to remember, it's better to forget. I think there are times when, uh, you know, the, I think South Africa is a very interesting situation you know, after apartheid. You know, and that's a very positive example where I think a country saw the dangers of going too far one way and the other and instituted a very formal procedure, the Truth and Reconciliation Procedure, so that, so that the, you know, the outrage and the sense of injustice of what had been done under, under apartheid could still have a voice. But on the other hand, it could be acknowledged that if, every, if there was purges you know, that through every branch of society, the whole place would disintegrate into civil war. So there was a very deliberate weighing up of those things. And I think it was miraculous and admirable how South Africa came out of that dark period. You know, um, I, I actually, bef- just before, I, I don't want to be presumptuous to mention American affairs because I'm a guest here. <laughs> But I, I would just say this. Just before I left Britain, I thought it was a very interesting idea. I heard an American commentator on British, the BBC, uh, talking about the Ferguson situation, you know, uh, the tensions there, and saying maybe it's time for the United States to institute some sort of formal truth and reconciliation uh, uh, committee um, on the, along the lines of what happened in South Africa to try and grapple with this question about, uh, about race and, and the history of slavery and segregation. You know, maybe that's what's needed because it's so hard to judge you know, how much you know, should be forgotten and how much should be, should be you know, gone back to. You know. um, but I think it's, uh, there's no easy answer to that, to that question. You know. And there isn't in the marriage either, I'd right. say. You know. Right. <laughs> so speaking of love and your book... Um, it's, I always find it interesting that across your body of work, love is not the answer. Love is not, love does not solve problems for the characters. In fact, it usually creates some problems, or in, or it kind of fits in with the whole realm of problems that are happening with the characters. And um, that is a very unwestern view. And when I lived in in Japan, I I saw that. Uh, perspective much more commonly there. So I was wondering, are you trying to merge the East and the West, or is something else going on with um, your choice to, to go that road? Well, it's very interesting you should say that, you know, maybe uh, because you, you've lived in Japan, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that you should say that maybe there's something Japanese about a certain take on love, but um, um, I haven't really thought about that, but um, I, I tend to think I, I'm, I'm rather like a typical Western sentimental kind of romantic about love, actually. I mean, it might not necessarily come over that way to you <laughs> sometimes. But, but uh, you know, if you think about it, I mean, a, a book like The Remains of the Day, I mean, all right, it's, 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 it's about two people who are hopeless at love, you know, uh, um, particularly the main character. I mean, he's so afraid of that emotional arena about, you know, so he doesn't allow himself to love and be loved. But, but it's essentially like a, um, a traditional kind of Western view, if we're talking in these terms, of, right. 
um, you know, there, there's something crucially um, wasted about his life because he just will not allow himself to love and be loved. Um, and that's the tragedy of his life. He cannot declare his love, and nor can, the, nor can Miss Kenton, the other character. Um, it, the, you know, some parts of that's a bit like a screwball comedy, I think. You know, they, they spend their time kind of bickering when, when, you know, when they really kind of rather fancy each other. You know, that's a classic kind of screwball comedy strategy. You know. um, but then um, they can't <laughs> declare their love. I mean, that, that seems to me, that, uh, that, that kind of centrality of, of saying, you know, love is so, so crucial to whether your life is seen as a wasted one or not, I think is, is quite a Western one. In my, in my more recent books, like Never Let Me Go or The Buried Giant, um, it's not so much... I, I, I kind of understand why you're saying you know, love isn't the answer. Love doesn't provide a practical solution. It doesn't give them anything extra, practically speaking. In Never Let Me Go, there's this rather um, painful situation where you know, these kids are told that their lives are necessarily going to be cut off, you know, around when they're in their late 20s or 30s. That's, that's been decided. That's their fate. Uh, and, then, and then there's a couple that think, well, we're so much in love, surely, you know, we, we deserve special treatment. That, that our love should be recognized in some way. At least we can have a deferral of our fate or something. And they're told, in the end, they're told, no, you can't, you know. Um, so in, in a sense... The, you know, however strong their bond is, it doesn't give them anything extra practically. But I think I wanted very much a sense that um, they do, in a way, they have the important thing. You know, even though their lives are cut short, because the whole thing is a kind of metaphor for what we all go through, mortality. We have to face mortality at some point. I think the book is... I, th- I think I'm trying to say, but look... You know, they, they have found something very important. And before it was too late, you know, these two people who always loved each other were able to declare their love for each other. Even for a tiny bit, they were allowed to spend some time together. Um, you know, isn't that something? So, so um, right, it, it does, it's not an answer in, in practical terms. It doesn't gain them anything extra. Although I am fascinated by this idea. Once again, I think this is kind of a, a sentimental Western idea, but but that you know, if you feel you've done this rather difficult thing of managing to nurture a love over many years, because it's quite difficult to find, you know, uh, find proper love. You know, I think, you know, whether it's within the family or whether it's with, with another person or you know, whether it's with a sibling. I think it, it's hard work a lot of the time. But when you when you think you've done a more or less good job, I think there is a kind of temptation to think, well, it should be acknowledged, surely. In some kind of way, even death should acknowledge it. You know, we should have some sort of special concession. And this idea that you know, love is stronger than death in some bizarre way ha- has been around for a long time. And I think in both Never Let Me Go and particularly in The Buried Giant, um, the couples play with that idea. You know, surely we're special. Surely we, we, we get you know, something special will happen to us. But they don't mind death so much as separation. They think, you know, we'll accept death as long as we can go into it together, you know. Um, and I'm fascinated by that emotion that you think, oh, this is so special. Surely even, even fate and death will acknowledge it, you know. 
The Berry Giant and The Unconsoled both took about 10 years for you to write, right? Well, not exactly right, but, right. but, but yeah, carry on, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I did a few other things, but yeah, carry right. on. Let's, let's, let's find out where this one's okay. going, and then, I don't know. then I'll, 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 I'll decide whether I'm going to no, dispute really the know. facts. Or... <laughs> so so um, those two books I know took quite a long time, mm-hmm. and I know also The Remains of the Day. I don't know if any of you have read um, Kazuo Ishiguro's blog about it was a blog post about um it was just a piece i had to write for the guardian yeah for the guardian that's right where uh, he did a crash and he wrote nonstop for four intensive weeks and cut himself off from society entirely um and finished the bulk of the writing of of the remains of the day in four weeks and don't be jealous um (laughs) so does your writing process change for each book or do you have a established process what is your process now um uh, given that it's kind of yeah well, uh, well j- just to put the record straight yeah i mean i i had to do this thing for the guardian newspaper uh, you know increasingly powerful newspaper in britain because they have a huge kind of international online following i did an event about the remains of the day with, for their book club it was a kind of a book club choice mm-hmm. and they asked me to write something about how i wrote the book and um i i, I kind of said that actually most of the important breakthroughs happened in four weeks when in a moment of desperation my wife and I had decided that um, I would seal myself off from from the outside world completely for four weeks I wouldn't speak to anybody else Um, I would answer I wouldn't answer the phone this is long before the you know internet or anything like this so it's easier in those days but I wouldn't answer any letters Um, I would I, I would get one hour off for lunch and two hours off for dinner, <laughs> but otherwise I'd work from morning till the time I went to bed, and I and and I would do this for four weeks just to see, you know, because I really needed to make some breakthroughs in writing my third novel. Um, I don't actually at that time it went well. I mean, in a sense, the writing went well, although I, I, my wife did notice that on the seventh day, the day I had off. Um, I, I was a bit odd, you know. <laughs> she said I would, I would giggle for no reason when I went outside <laughs> and things like this. But all, right, but, all right, so there were costs, okay. <laughs> but I was only, I was about 32 years old then, and I, I could do this kind of thing. And, and it is true that I made a lot of the key breakthroughs by doing that. At the end of that four-week period, you know, I was a sorry sight, but I, I, I had this, I had a pile of very messy things on my desk, uh, you would have been shocked if you'd, you know, I had sentences that disappeared into nowhere, you know, terrible grammar, you know, a lot of spelling mistakes, just handwritten scrawl, but I, I had everything I needed for, for that novel then, you know, I, I saw the whole arc of the story, all I needed to do after that was to, was to, you know, write the proper words, you know. Um, and I, and I, it did, you know, I did spend a lot of time after, after that, you know, polishing and polishing it. But that, that's an exaggerated way in which I would go about things. And, and today, you know, I did try this. I'm not sure why it was called a crash. I'm not, that's just what we called it. You know, maybe it was an anticipation of what would happen to me. You know. I don't know. But anyway, we called it a crash. We tried it twice more. And the next two sessions weren't so successful. I, I just en- ended up as a wreck, you know, and didn't produce anything very interesting. But in, twice it, more for the same book or twice no, more? No, 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 uh, just a- other points in my life. So I don't recommend this to anybody here who, <laughs> who thinks this. 
But, um, but that is in an exaggerated way, uh, kind of more or less how I still work. I mean, I, I, I like to get all my ideas out in a very, very messy way. I don't care at that stage about sentences or style. Um, I would often allow a, a strand of a story just to you know, go off into, into nothing. If it just goes nowhere, it goes nowhere. You know, I just, I'm just following it down an avenue to see if it produces something. Sometimes I'll change my mind, you know, after I've been writing quite a bit about something quite crucial, like the, the main character doesn't have children, but I think, oh, actually, you know, the main character should have children. And I'll just, from then on, the main character would have children. I wouldn't go back and bother, you know, because this is simply for me, and, and it's really just to get my ideas shaped on paper. But I, I end up with a terrible, messy thing. That, that is my raw material. Uh, it, I, you know, it may take a lot longer than four weeks, but th- that is what I aim to do. And often I won't go all the way through the novel. I, I would usually do that for about 30, 40 pages worth. Um, and then when I feel I've got enough, I'll, I tend to go over and over, a redrafting. Not so much, once again, worrying so much about the prose, but... you know. To take that example, you know, should a character have children or not have children? Um, you know, in the past, I, you know, I've, I've made decisions like that quite casually, and I've been stuck with them. So this is why I'm, I don't go all the way through the book in one rough draft. I, I, I stop at a certain point, you know, 40 pages in, and then I, I think very carefully about the implications of all, all these apparently casual decisions I made in, in this while I was doing this kind of rough stuff, and, and trying, to, trying to foresee what, what, the, um, uh, what the implications would be of, of this person you know, having children, this person being, you know, speaking in the way they do. And, so, um, and, and then I, feel, I kind of feel like I have to build a, a floor quite soundly before I can build the next floor on top of it. And so I tend to do that, you know, then a, another 40 pages until I get to the en- end of the story. So that, that's how I tend to work. I, I've always worked like that, and uh, I still tend to do that today. Although many, you know, I, I, th- things do change over the years, you know, smaller ways in which I work. But that's essentially how I, my process, if you like. Mm-hmm. Once again, I, I, there's a, there should be a health warning with that. It's not... <laughs> It's not necessarily a good way to do it. You know. I think there are all kinds of problems about doing it that way. But, you know, I, we won't go into that for now, unless you want me to. <laughs> what are some challenges you faced with, with writing in general or any particular project, particularly um, The Very Giant? Or have you, did you run into any roadblocks with that book? Oh, I, I always run into roadblocks. I mean, uh, um, I, I always think... Um, I, you know, I, I think novels are awfully difficult. You know, I think, I think it's a very, very difficult form. Um, probably every, everyone, you know, poets will say po- poetry is terribly difficult. I, I, I appreciate this, but I mean, but, uh, you know, everything's very... Uh, okay, everybody's got a very difficult job. All right, that's... Uh, I agree. All right. You know, but I've got a very difficult job. Um, and uh, it's brought home to me... For instance, when I watched people trying to make movies based on my novels, you, know, you go to a set and you see something like a you know, pretty large company of kind of highly skilled people, um, at, and they've all been divided up into departments, 
and, and you get sort of you know, very good actors, some of the best actors of their generation are working on individual characters and you know, some, some you know, brilliant person is working on the set design and you know, there's a director and, um, and it occurs to you, you, know, you know, if you're a novelist you've got to do all this yourself <laughs> right? I mean, you, all the equivalent things um, in, the, in the novel form I have to be all these things. I have to be the set designer, the makeup person. The, I have to be all the actors. I mean, no wonder I've got such a difficult job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, poets don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, a, it's a big, big job. It's a really, and, and so, you know, no wonder. Um, so every time I write a, a novel, there comes at least you know, two or three points where I think I'm just not going to be able to do this. You know, I get desperate. Even after all these years, I, I, I just think, how on earth did I do it before? It must have been a sheer fluke I got away with it before. I just cannot see how I'm going to move forward. And often what happens is that I do actually put a novel to one side for a little while um, because I just can't see the way forward. There's, some, you know, there's a piece of the jigsaw I can just not... You know, it just won't come. And annoyingly, I mean, with annoying frequency... The thing that I can't get, you know, the, the block, if you like, it's nothing to do with not. It's not nothing to do with what's called writer's block. Where I, I sit there thinking I can't write today. I can't write today. I, I never get that. It's usually a very specific thing, and increasingly, it's it's the setting, mm-hmm. which might sound completely daft to you, but <laughs> you, you you would think I would have this right, you know, somewhere near the beginning of the writing process. And I just, <laughs> but this is another. You know, another part of the silly way I go about things. Um, I tend to kind of, um, I, I tend, to, I, I have a kind of a slightly geeky notebook, where you know, ever since the 1980s, I've written down uh, ideas for stories. You know, I think that oh, th- th- this one could become a novel, this one might become a movie. I, I have this delusional idea that one day I'm going to write a blockbuster movie. So I write down ideas. And I, I, feel, I, I like these ideas to be expressed in something like two or three simple sentences. You know, I should be able to distill it to, to that kind of terse thing. And when I look at these three or four sentences, I should be able to feel enormous tension or some kind of very big emotion coming off them. You know. that, that's how I feel. So, and then I choose the ones that I think are really enticing. But they tend to be kind of slightly abstract. You know, they'll, they'll be based around a relationship or a kind of a premise. They won't actually have a setting. And, and so, uh, you know, there comes a point when I've kind of worked out the relationship, you know, and the relationships are very important to me, um, and what's going to happen, what kind of world it is. But I don't have a setting. And I spend a lot of time, idiotically, kind of like location hunting. You know, where... Where is the best place to put this story down in, in history? Which time and place would, would, re, would really bring this story to life? And also, what comes with that question is which genre uh, would best serve this story? Let's talk about genre, mm-hmm. if, because we only have time for one more question, although oh, okay. I have only right. 34 listed okay. here right. left. Um, so there is a lot of big hubbub about whether or not you were calling the buried giant fantasy or, or what. And um, 
I was, first of all, do you consider it to belong to the fantasy genre and, um, or allegory, or do you resist genre classifications, or how do you respond to genre? Because your books have, you know, Never Let Me Go, was people were like, well, is it speculative or is it not speculative? It has clones, but it's also a love story. So you've played with genre quite a lot in your career, and I'm wondering how um, how you view the buried giant with regard to your career and also with regard to genre. Well, let me make it clear. If people want to call it fantasy, that's fine with me. <laughs> you know, um, I didn't start off by saying I- I'm now going to walk into the fantasy genre. Um, it was slightly unfortunate that um, I think Ursula K. Le Guin um, interpreted a quote of mine in the New York Times uh, as, as though I was disparaging the genre f- fantasy, you know, what's commonly called. But, but I don't want to get back into that because she has, she has graciously withdrawn that in her blog, and she said that she was too hasty in branding me as somebody who was speaking of the genre. So I, I, I don't want to you know, start that thing again. But in the meantime, <laughs> as you said, both within the what's called the SFF community and beyond it, um, there's, there seems to be a lot of debate. And, and I think it's much bigger than my book. You know, I think I've stepped into some larger thing that's been going on in the, in the book world for some time. And I think it's quite an interesting, even exciting thing. Because I think genre boundaries have been breaking down uh, over the last you know, several years. Um, I think the border between what used to be called popular fiction and literary fiction is also crumbling. Um, I think writers, maybe a generation younger than me, people like David Mitchell, um, uh, writers like that have done a lot to, uh, to just kind of, you know, just, just break down all these kind of barriers. They, 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 they don't just genre hop. They, they revel in the, in, in the ability to use many, many things you know, that are out there. And I think the younger generation of readers are very respons- re- responsive to this. You know, maybe that generation that grew up as children terribly excited about things like Harry Potter, and that's at the heart of their reading experience. You know, this wasn't, the Harry Potter experience for people who are now in their 20s wasn't just something that, that, that their guardians and teachers told them to read. It, it was something they were absolutely you know, excited about. You know. And because that tended to have that kind of fantasy element, I think a lot of that, that generation have grown up and they're reading what used to be called very serious literature, classic literature, but they're very, very open to this. And, and the effect on people of my generation, I found particularly, you know, maybe since I wrote Never Let Me Go and this book, I, mean, I have felt a kind of liberating influence in the, in the literary culture. I think maybe, you know, maybe say even 15, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had the courage to write Never Let Me Go as a kind of sci-fi-ish speculative book. I, I, there would have been some sort of lingering prejudice that I'd inherited saying a literary author shouldn't go there. You know, that's kind of sectioned off. But, but I, I feel actually very excited about um, being able to use everything and on, on, specifically on, on this thing that we're calling fantasy, it never occurred to me that you know, someone might attach that label to my book because I was coming at it more from things like um, uh, uh, The Odyssey and Beowulf and actually a lot of um, Japanese um, samurai you know, stories that, that I, I grew up on. 
as a kid. You know, it, it, the supernatural and the, the, and the normal seem to coexist quite simply in a lot of those old um, Japanese folk tales where you know, a samurai comes into town and, and the people in the town say, look, we've got a, we've got a demon problem in our town. This demon keeps appearing on that bridge. Please go and sort that out. And the samurai says, yes, all right. I mean, it's just full of stuff. I mean, it's completely normal, you know. So, so in, in my moment, you know, when, when I started to get desperate, as I kind of related before, in this book, you know, I did actually think maybe I, I, could, I could use a kind of sci-fi setting because I needed basically a situation where everyone was suffering from some sort of controlled memory loss in a community. Well, yes, I, you know, we could all think of some sci-fi-ish reason why that might be happening. You know, maybe some, one of these ubiquitous um, uh, you know, internet companies we won't try and mention any names. <laughs> or somebody like that might have done something to you know, our, our brains or something. And, and, right, so we can all think of that kind of solution. I, I did toy with that, but this time round, I thought it'll be fun to go for something ancient, something kind of mythical. And I was, to be honest, I was slightly taken aback when my book was published, and a number of people did start to say, oh, we, you know, I, I loved Never Let Me Go, I loved Remains of the Day, but I hear your book's got ogres and pixies in it. I, I don't usually read books with ogres and pixies. <laughs> and I did actually think, well, isn't that prejudice? You know, I mean, um, uh, ogres you know, and pixies have feelings Ogres too. and pixies. Well, I feel, exactly, I feel, all right, they're just extras in my book. They're not, they don't have big roles in my book. But <laughs> I, I didn't pay them very well, but, but they did a very good job for me. Mm-hmm. And if there are lines being drawn, as I sense in some more conservative parts of the book world, lines are being drawn about whether we want ogres and pixies in, within serious literature. Well, let me just say very clearly, I'm on the side of the ogres and pixies. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want any imagination police looking over my shoulder when I'm writing, and I don't want imagination police looking over the shoulders of readers when they read, you know. And I think we're, we're going into a, a, a quite an interesting, exciting, liberal era, I think, in our reading. And, and I think we should welcome that, you know. I, I think the kids, the younger people, are leading the way in this, you know. So let's let some of those kids and not-so-kids people... Um, <laughs> Uh, ask some questions. So please come up to the mic and form lines. I know you all are curious. Hi. Um, ish, sorry. Hello. I'm actually from England, so I watch uh, a lot of the news that, uh, you know, I still like to watch the English news. And I saw an interview with you just recently where uh, you said your wife didn't quite like the book, so you had to rewrite it. On Channel, I think it was that Channel 4 News interview? It, it could have, I've done an awful lot of television in Britain, and yeah. I haven't really seen most of it, but... but, but <laughs> But I, I know what that is, what you're yeah. referring to. Um, what, um, this, um, I actually blurted, I blurted that out actually, right. um, <laughs> at a literary festival in, in, in the autumn in, okay. in Britain. And uh, everybody asked me about it. I mean, I, I had no idea this would hit such a nerve. I still don't know why such a nerve. The, the essence of it is this, that basically I, I said that, um, but people kept asking, well, why is it 10 years since your last novel? Now, there are many... Good answers to that. You know, you know, I published a book of short stories, had a couple of movies to worry about. I've been writing some song lyrics for my jazz singer friend, Stacey Kent. But 
But people won't listen to any of that. What they hear is this bit. They hear this bit. Uh, that you know, back in 2004, I began The Buried Giant, and I was getting on with it very well. I was rather proud of what I'd done. I, I, I thought I, I, I needed a little bit of encouragement, so I showed my wife, Lorna. Not, she's somewhere in this audience. I can never see her. But anyway, uh, and, and, and she looked at it and said, um, uh, you would ha- you know, I would have to start again. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and I said, so which parts do you think I should can refine or, you know, what, what, what needs to change? And she said, no, nothing, you know, you just start again. You know, not a word of this, not a single word of this is going to get published. You, know, it just, it's st- you, know, you had to start from scratch. You know. So this was in 2004, immediately after I finished writing Never Let Me Go. You know. uh, so I did, you know, what, what can you do, you know, in this situation? So I, 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 I put it to one side, and um, I, as you said, I'm not a complete doormat. I wouldn't automatically, you know, just do what she said. But, but I, you know, I, I, I did actually listen to her, what you might call her suggestion, quite seriously, and I thought there was some merit to it after a while. So, so I put it to one side, because as I explained to you before, I do, I, I'm not afraid to do this, because I've had such a long history of putting things to one side and things working out when I come back to them a few years later. And I went back to it um, maybe about three or four years later. Um, and that's what happened. Okay. Um, and the, you know, when I went back to it, um, well, I, I, th- I thought it went all right. But more importantly, my wife said, okay, that's all right. It's better this time. But I did what she said. I went right back to the beginning, started again. Okay. Right, thank you. Okay. Hello. Um, just to return to what you said earlier about um, memory and kind of living with those things that we choose to bury underneath, I was just wondering, um, as somebody who was born in Nagasaki, uh, a generation after the bombs, I was just wondering how, I know that you are also an Englishman, but how has that kind of influenced that in that, like, being, you know, part of a hugely traumatic, like, kind of inheriting that in your culture and like in that kind of thing how has that kind of impacted the way that you write about memory and the way that you respond to traumatic things like through memory like would you say that your novels respond to that in any way well it's it's possible i did grow up um well i should make make clear that i was born nine years after the end of the second world war indeed nine years after the atomic bombing of nagasaki in nagasaki my mother was actually there for the for the bombing um, so I did actually grow up um, aware that people around me um, referred to the atomic bombing, but they didn't really talk about it in any, any great detail. Um, but I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't get a sense that they were suppressing anything. Um, it was often, uh, it's partly, I suppose, because I was a child, they wouldn't go into all these things, but it wasn't like a taboo Subject. I mean, even as a very small child, when I was still in Japan, you know, I, I, the word Genshi Bakudan, which, which is atomic bomb, was one that was very familiar to me. But people tended to use it almost casually as a kind of a marker in time. You know, they'll say, um, those buildings were built after the atomic bomb. You know, uh, that bridge uh, was there until the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, there'll be a slightly more emotional thing when they, where they'll, they'll be talking about a relative or an old friend, and the story would end, ah, but she died in the atomic bomb. 
But, that, that, but I never got a sense that it was something that people didn't mention or that it was taboo. And by and large, I would say the whole pressure of the world was to make everyone remember the two atomic bombings because we had entered by then, very rapidly after the Second World War, we entered the Cold War and what everybody feared was a nuclear war. Uh, this haunted us. And I, I have to say, if there's a kind of a buried period about atomic weapons, I think it's now. I don't mm. understand why people think they've gone away. You know, the Cold War might have gone away. I think they're with us in a, in, a, in a very scary way right now. But people don't worry about it in nearly the way they did when I was growing up during the Cold War. But I think because of the Cold War, the, the two bombs that fell on Japan were remembered and remembered and remembered. Uh, there was a battle over how that memory was used, mm. but by and large, I think that was remembered and remembered and remembered. I think what is buried in Japan is all the rest of the, of the memories about the Second World War. Mm. The Japanese, by and large, I mean, you know, they, they were encouraged to forget at the end of the, end of the war the fact that they were aggressors. Uh, they were, you know, th from the 30s, they went into China and Southeast Asia and, and, and did awful things. And, but because at the end of the Second World War, the, the need was for a strong liberal democracy, a strong economic power in, in a part of the world that otherwise seemed to be dominated by communist, the Soviet Union and, and, chi and, and, and communist China, everything was done, I think, to allow Japan to forget its role as aggressors, as bad guys, and to see, it, see, see herself as victims of, of the nuclear attacks, and to encourage Japan to build itself into a very strong liberal democracy. This is a classic case when we're talking about when is it better to forget, when is it better to remember. There is a very strong case to say that it was justified in allowing Japan to forget the bad things because Japan did become a very stable and very strong, and in many ways very admirable, liberal democracy when it could have easily you know, disintegrated into something terrible you know, after the war. Um, so I think there's always this very difficult question, even if it means terrible injustice or injustice goes unacknowledged or unpunished, maybe there are times when you have to bury things. So I think, I think Japan has buried the other stuff about the Second World War, but not the atomic weapons. And, and, and I, so I don't sense that that part of my writing about buried memories comes from the, the atomic bombings. In, in some odd way, I feel that's a kind of a, a very controlled, enforced remembering. You know, you remember the bombs, remember the bombs. You know, that, that, that goes on, and I think, I think it's kind of justified as well. You've spoken quite a bit about some of the different decisions that you've made as you've written your books, and I'm just wondering, from an author's perspective, how do you know when you've hit upon the right decision, when you know that it's the right setting, you know it's the right character? Um, and as a corollary to that, how do you emotionally let go of your previous path that you were really um, thought that that was going to be how the book was written? Okay, um well, um, well, I think this is a this is a very this is a very very fundamental question that you raise. How how does an author know when her or his decisions are are right? You know, um, 
I, I, well, I suppose the, the answer is that you don't, but I, I, let me just say this. I mean, I think um, this isn't a complete non sequitur. I, I've always loved music. You know, I, and my first ambition was to be a musician. And I still listen to a lot of music quite seriously, in a, in a kind of quite serious way. And I, I, although I play very badly, I try to keep that side of my life up, you know, the, the kind of uh, writing music um, um, and playing music. Um, partly because I, I think a lot of the decisions that um, you make, I make as a, as a novelist they have to be made in that kind of almost intuitive way, in the same way that a musician might decide that you know, this take of a solo... Uh, a jazz mus- musician may say, look, th- this tenor saxophone solo I did, take one is the one I want, not take two. And you say to that musician, well, why? You know, justify why you want. And they'll say, well, you, you know, you're crazy. You know, I don't have to justify it. It sounds better. It's, it's what I wanted to say. You know, it expresses the emotions I wanted. That's why I want that. And I think the difficulty is that because as novelists we use words which are also used for argument, for polemic, for essays, there's a temptation to think when you're writing a novel that when you make an artistic decision you should be able to justify it in a, in a, in a kind of intellectual or inglit way. You know, even... I guess even the process like the one we're having here, where you know, people may ask me, why do you have that in your work? Why is that in your novel? I kind of feel that I need to be able to come up with a fairly articulate argument as to why it's there, you know, kind of a creative writing kind of idea. But the truth of it is, anyway, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of the time I make decisions, not unconsciously, but I, and maybe not even by instinct, but... I do rely on some sort of intuition, which I think is very close to, that, to the kind of intuition that musicians and composers and painters rely on. It's, it's one that cannot ever be backed up by some sort of intellectual argument. But I can actually say with some conviction, you know, it sounds better that way. You know, why does that scene you wrote take place at dawn? You know, on a misty dawn day, why don't you have it take place instead indoors, you know, in a, in a kind of a darkly lit room? I can't really say. You know, I, I might, in a, if I'm backed into a corner, I might try and drum up some clever <laughs> answer for that. But the honest answer is, I, that's the atmosphere, that's what I wanted. It's closer to what I want. It looks better that way, it sounds better that way. And I think it's very important, I feel it's very important for novelists not to over-intellectualise or become too self-conscious about their art, but to keep, a, keep alive some part of the creative process that's closer to, to, the, to the musicians. You know, to, to say... Because I think a lot of the time we have to make our decisions not, you know, just by saying, look, it, it, that's just what I want. And, and, and over the years, I, I've got quite confident about doing that. You know, but I, 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 I'm always, I feel I'm always struggling... Um, to justify that side of my decision-making process. But I think quite a large percentage of my key artistic decisions are made in that kind of intuitive way. And so, I, in a way, I can't answer you, you know, answer that question clearly, how do I know, other than 
to say kind of what the jazz musician or any musician says. You know, it, it, that's the take I want. That, that's the one that sounds better. That's closer to what I wanted to express. And that's why it's going to go in. You know? And that's what I, just, I try to listen to. You know? Thank you. I had a, uh, a kind question and a cheeky question. And I was up here trying to decide which one to do. So I'll do the cheeky question, <laughs> which is, um, uh, I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I, we, our, my family, I was born in Vancouver, uh, but my family moved to Alabama in 1965 before most Asians were allowed to immigrate to the United States. The people who were there had been there before World War II. So I grew up sort of, in a way, oddly blind to race, believe it or not, um, and it wasn't until I went to Korea and I had a gifted teacher tell me that in Korea, we do have racism, we just don't talk about it. The United States at least talks about it. It's an issue, it's public. And I realized that I'd finally, I'd actually internalized not the Alabamian whatever attitudes, whatever, I'd internalized my own parents' denial of race and what that means. So, and then it was a kind of eye-opening and... Uh, it's become a huge tool for me since then. So I'm wondering what you have to say about that? Or... <laughs> well, I, I think you're right. I was having a discussion about this kind of thing yesterday with an Englishman I came across in, uh, in Ann Arbor. I had to think a little bit where I was last night, actually. Um, and he said something very similar, because we were talking about you know, what were the, the buried giants of British society. Because he had come away from Britain, and he was, he was saying he had a big perspective on Britain. He thought, actually, now that he'd come away from Britain, he could see that there were all these unspoken things, uh, and that you know, the British were outrageously selective about what they remembered, particularly about empire, how it was acquired, how it was maintained, and how it was let go. Um, but, in fact, we were saying exactly kind of what you said. Yes, there is this... You know, this open wound in American society about race, but there is, there is something very admirable about America. It, it, the, the, the discussion is there. You know, no one avoids it. People are trying to do something about it. You know, and I, I think, I, I think that, that, that is actually very admirable, and that is, in a way, typical of America. You know, uh, America sometimes does things wrong, but whatever, but very rapidly, you know, people start arguing about it. You know. They, 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 they invade a country, you know, um, and for a little while, you know, no one's allowed to criticize that decision. And then everybody's arguing and you know, criticizing. Uh, this is one of the great strengths about America. And I, I, I think, yes, there are, I think this is a great strength um, of this country. Um, I think, yeah, I think not just in, I can't comment on Korea, but I think... Um, I think to some extent in Britain, but in many parts of Europe, um, I, I think racism is, is kind of buried, that the existence of racism is kind of almost buried as a subject. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th I, think, I think that's a very interesting comment that you make. You know, that, that I think it's the, the whole debate is buried. People want to pretend that they are not, there is no racism in, in the society. And it leads to all kinds of problems. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we should perhaps move on, but because we're kind of running out of time. But that's a, I think that's a really, you know. Hello. Hi. Um, I want to ask you about 
the language that you use to write this novel, um, and specifically how language relates to the concept of like collective memory or societal memory. Um, the history that we have from the distant past has come down through written word as well as oral tradition, but both of these uh, methods employ language, which is a very imperfect medium. Um, history becomes legend, legend becomes myth. Uh, is that something that you thought about when you were choosing the language to use to write this novel? And um, as someone that has made a career out of words, uh, is that something that you think about? Well, I should probably think about my actual words, you know, the actual prose <laughs> in my books, far, far more than I do. Um, um, yeah, I, I, but often the words are kind of what, I, what, what I'm left with when all these other, other artistic decisions are made. You know? um, so if we just go back a little bit from this book, I mean, typically with a first-person narrative, um, so much of the actual language that ends up in a book like Never Let Me Go, let us say, or The Remains of the Day, just to take two first-person narratives I've written, I'm not really thinking about the language directly. I'm thinking more about, you know, how would this character who narrates, how would that person speak? You know? um, and because that person is writing from a certain psychological position of trying to avoid some things and trying to embellish other things, and they're kind of slightly defensive, but they're trying to boast about some other things... The la you know, I would choose the language to reflect that and to, so that the, lang the language that the narrator uses suggests these characteristics and, the, and, and this kind of psychological position. You know, all the decisions about how the sentence should go, um, you know, what kind of diction is used, is really conditioned by, for me, the, 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 these questions about the, the, the character. You know, how is that character trying to evade certain things? Um, it's to do with those kind of decisions. And, and the language that ends up on the page, I guess, is a kind of the end product of, of, of many, many other um, kind of decisions that, that I have to make. Um, obviously, at some level, I, 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 there, there is a point when I say, you know, I'll write the sentence this way rather than that, because it's kind of stylistically nicer, but... I, I don't really think I, I, I can't remember often writing a line without reference to, to the, the, you know, the character who is thinking it or the character whose viewpoint that line is representing. You know, it's, it's always, for me, that the style is always secondary to what, is, you know, what it's conveying, what the emotion it's supposed to be conveying, or the, the, mess, you know, the information it's supposed to convey. Um, but more specifically about the buried giant, I mean, and um, and part of the, the key reason why my wife told me to start again um, was, to, was to do with the dialogue. Um, you know, whenever you choose to set a, a book in some far-off world, that's unlike our, our world, this is a question that the writer has to grapple with. You know, how, how do the people talk to each other? Um, and I, I had started off by creating a kind of rather ornamented language, because it's not English that is being spoken here. It's some language that existed before the English came to Britain. So I was trying to create a rather ornamented language by adding things to the standard English that we would speak in. 
Um, and this was one of the things my wife had objected to. The second time round, I tried to create a kind of ultra-simple version of English by taking words out, I, by taking out an of or a, or a that or a which uh, from a typical sentence we would write or utter um, by subtracting. I, I found I, I ended up with something that, that was oddly stilted, but I thought in its own way had a kind of lyricism and an economy. Um, and so the second time round, I tried to create this kind of funny language that they spoke in uh, by subtraction rather than addition or ornamentation. Um, it's still, anything like that, it's rather like humour. You know, anything like that always ends up controversial. There are always people who like it and people who don't like it, I find. Um, but you know, the, the, the point is you've got to make some sort of decision. You know, sometimes writers say, well, it's set in some you know, bygone era, but I'm just going to use modern English or modern whatever it is they're writing in. Um, you know, never mind you know, trying to ape it. That, that's a, another kind of decision. You create a strange effect by doing that, but you know, it's, it's slightly odd. You know. um, I did think about that too, but I thought I had to suggest... Uh, a foreign language, you know, as well as an old language. So um, I, I went for this subtraction technique. Um, but, you know, once having made that decision of how to, how to do that language, once again, I wasn't thinking about it line by line very much, you know. I'm more thinking about well, what, what, what would this woman say to this man, you know. That, um, that, that's really uppermost in my mind. Thank you. Thank we you. have time for one more quick question. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess mine has to do with the impact of childhood on your writing. And uh, uh, I'm similar to you. My father is a scientist and came to Colorado. And uh, uh, I didn't, and my parents lived here, and I didn't learn English until I started school. But so that's kind of a, uh, it was a very weird childhood in a way, because uh, it was completely different from everybody else's childhood. And, and, uh, and it, it still, um, I think about it a lot, but I wonder, so in your case, how did that childhood experience uh, affect your writing, or how do you use that? Well, it's, it's kind of hard for me to always assess that, but um, maybe it's similar to your childhood. I mean, I, I grew up from the age of 5 to 15 in a kind of a state of suspension, because I thought I was going to return to Japan at any moment, and so did my parents. And we didn't belong to any kind of uh, ethnic community in Japan. Uh, in, sorry, in Britain. You know, there was no Japanese community. There was just us and a lot of English people. <laughs> and, and my parents didn't adopt the attitude of immigrants. They had, uh, they had the attitude of people who were hanging around for two years or so. You know. So as I got older, from the age of five, you know, six, seven... Obviously, I, I, to some extent, I see the world through my parents' eyes. You know, my parents have to interpret the world to me. Uh, but the difference between me and my English friends was that my English friends would be taught, you know, this is the right way to do things. That is good manners. That is bad manners. You must do this. You know, this, that's all right. Um, whereas the, exactly the same things, I, I was encountering exactly the same things that my parents were saying... That, that's the way the natives do things here. You know, that's how the English do things. Remember, you know, the people here do things like that. You know. uh, 
Kokonoshito was a phrase I heard a lot, you know, the people over here. They do things like this. And, and they, they, they would always say this with a mixture of fascination and surprise and a, 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 a little bit of respect, you know. Yeah. They're basically saying, oh, so they do things like this here. Isn't that odd? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> no, no, you must remember this, you know. Um, otherwise, you know, they'll get slightly offended because you, you do that, you know. Um, and so I suppose eventually, of course, I, I became a kind of a, a, an Englishman, as you see, you know. But I think I was a little bit different in that I always saw things with that kind of perspective of, you know, oh, this is how the people here do things. These aren't absolute values, particularly about the class system and also about Christianity. Uh, Because the Britain we arrived in was still a very church-going community. Um, But, you know, my my parents weren't Christians. Um, You know, they they thought I should go to uh, Sunday school. I sang in a church choir. But, you know, I was at a slight distance from, from those values too. Maybe all those things contributed, or maybe they helped, I don't know, in allowing me to, to have a slight distance on the world that is perhaps helpful when you, when you, are, when you are a novelist. Um, maybe, the, uh, you know, perhaps it did. It, it, I, it wouldn't be a ridiculous theory. But I, do, I myself don't... I can't really point and, to some aspect of my childhood and, and say, um, you know, that's why I write this way, or that's why I became a writer, you know. And the kind of fiction writing I do, I don't actually really write about my, directly about my childhood experiences. You know, um, I don't, I'm not that kind of autobiographical writer. But um, I, I, think I, I think I benefited a little bit from that Distance from the society I was growing up in. And also, just to finish off now, you know sometimes when you take your glasses off and uh, you wander around a room and, and you think you see some kind of startlingly beautiful images, you know, and actually you made a... It, and you put your glasses back on and you realise that, that it, it was just the edge of the desk and something. You, know, <laughs> you just... You, you made a kind of a complete mistake because you've got bad eyesight, but you... <laughs> But actually, it was quite inspiring for a little moment, what you saw. I, I think Pat, partly because of my parents' ignorance of British society, uh, I, I think I perhaps kind of, in a funny kind of way, I, I saw quite interesting things by mistake. You know, they weren't even true. You know? And I had this strange... Uh, one example is um, uh, that when I arrived in Britain, I didn't know the difference between... America and England. You know, it's quite, kind of hard for me to make that distinction. So I was watching cowboy shows on the television and I was learning my English from, mm-hmm. from things like Bonanza and Wagon Train. Uh, you know, these are things. And of course, I didn't know, you know. It was all just Western English stuff for me. So I, I couldn't make the distinction, right? So I had this kind of strange view of England, you know, home counties England in the 1960s. It's also a place where these cowboys were. <laughs> and I would go into school and, and, and you know, instead of saying, how do you do, miss, and things like this at yeah. school, I would say, howdy, you know, things like that. <laughs> because I, didn't, I, was, I, was, I had no English tuition, you know. And so, I, in a strange kind of way, I had a kind of surreal view of the West. It was a kind of a mixture of all these things I was being bombarded with, you know. And it took me a while to kind of... It certainly took my parents a while to... I mean, 
they often can tell the difference between an American show and a British show, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it took a long time to kind of di- disentangle a lot of things, you know. Uh, uh, but in a funny kind of way, maybe it, it did help me build a kind of slightly surreal, distorted view of, a, a kind of distorted mirror view of, of the world, the, the society I lived in. And sometimes in my books, I do like to, to have my world, you know, Slightly askew. It's not. It's not a direct mirror reflection of, of the of our everyday world. I like it to be slightly distorted, a little bit unreal, you know. And maybe, uh, maybe it, some of that comes from that experience as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Is that it? Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And, and, and thank you very much to Erica. Okay. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.